Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. And I'm Darrell. And today, we're dangerously likely to talk about gerrymandering. Let's go above the fault with this week's headlines. This week, the Supreme Court has unanimously ruled that the NCAA cannot prohibit, in quotes, modest payments to student-athletes. While this decision affected how colleges and universities offer benefits to student-athletes, it did not directly address whether or not athletes can make money through endorsements or sponsorships. However, the Supreme Court seemed to leave the door open to such a challenge in the future. Justice Brett Kavanaugh stated, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. This decision comes at a time in which the NCAA has seen increased pressure to change the way it does business and gives student athletes more rights. Next week, six states will allow college athletes to have endorsements. Notably, this is not a decision that the NCAA supports, but a decision the states have made to give student athletes more rights. In other news, Juneteenth is now a federal holiday in the U.S. And for context, June 19th, 1865, Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas to enforce the emancipation of the last enslaved African-Americans more than two years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Terrell, what are your thoughts on Juneteenth officially becoming a federal holiday? Yay. (laughs) Very enthusiastic. No one asked for it. Congrats. We have a day off. Uh, My family has been taking Juneteenth off since as young as I can remember. It's just one of those holidays we knew. Um, it, It doesn't do anything. The country hasn't changed. There's... There's no no great onus. I mean, look no further than the state that started the holiday, Texas, to see how important it is to make it a holiday. Like, I, I definitely hear you on that. I think it's it's an okay step, but it shouldn't distract from actual reform at all. Yeah, it's just it's another. It's just a thing. It's like the NFL playing the Black National Anthem. Woo. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it's a good thing. I think a lot of people don't know what Juneteenth is. I agree with that. And I think this is a good time to have those conversations and education and whatnot. So ultimately, I think it's it's a good thing. But again, uh, let's not let it be a distraction from what really needs to happen here. Yeah, I'll, I will be happier when the holiday will matter more when the intent of the holiday is true. Uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a little bit throughout the episode, but the Senate just blocked a bill to make voting easier in this country, a right. Not because of any valid reasons, but because one specific party wants to continue predatory practices that came after Juneteenth, during the Jim Crow era, that stopped African Americans from being able to vote. African American unemployment has not recovered from COVID, and there's a solid chance that it won't. I'm happy that we have an administration that is actually saying the words diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is saying equity, 
But at the same time, our children aren't going to be taught what the Republican Party has deemed as critical race theory. So, yes, I'm happy that there's a day off. I did nothing that Friday, actually. Um, same. But it it falls hollow on a country that continues to be exactly what it was at the time that this occurred. Racist. <laughs> Internationally, the category is environment. Per BBC News, the UNESC. a body within the UN um, has recommended that the Great Barrier Reef be listed as endangered following levels of damage suffered um, over years of bleaching. While Australia is is poised to challenge this recommendation, many groups are using this as an opportunity to highlight the weak actions the government has taken to protecting the climate. Um, The reef stretch over... Uh, 1,400 miles off the northeast coast of Australia, and they have been deemed as enormously important to scientific research and just understanding of our marine time life. Over the years, um, the same entity has put forth money to help better protect the reefs at $3 billion, but as mentioned, with several bleaching incidents and just years of rising sea temperatures, um, the organization has highlighted and recommended that the reefs are placed on the endangered list. Out of Africa, Sudan has asked the UN Security Council to convene and discuss a growing dispute over the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile. According to Reuters, Ethiopian officials view the dam as an economic hope and a source of power generation, while Egypt relies on the Nile River for 90% of its fresh water, and Sudan is concerned about operations of their own dam. Both Sudan and Egypt have already agreed this month to work together on all levels to push Ethiopia to negotiate seriously on an agreement after African Union-sponsored talks remain at a deadlock. The two countries are kind of reaching their breaking point and have called for the international community to intervene. Lastly, the World Bank on Tuesday agreed to boost spending on climate change to 35% from 28% and provide annual reports on their progress. As the largest source of climate finance for developing countries claims this as a roadmap to meet the climate accords from Paris, notably, The court will look to evaluate gas production on a case-by-case basis, setting a potential stage for more robust conversations on fossil fuels in the future. Genevieve Connors told Reuters, this is really transformational in the way we do business, she said. One of the central differences of this climate change action plan is that we as the World Bank Group have now elevated climate to be central to everything we do. Well, that's great. I know. What is? I do want some of your initial reaction. You're you're the climate guy here. That is kind of a theme, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, you're the world guy. I'm the climate guy. Well, I think that um, the World Bank, the world's bank, um, increasing its climate spending. And financing is a really big deal. Um, I hope that 
I know like richer countries like the U.S. are already looking at doing a lot of climate stuff and we're far from perfect on this. Don't get me wrong. But I really hope that the World Bank increasing its um, climate kind of financing here uh, will be good for those developing countries that don't have the means to do some of the stuff that we do. Absolutely. Um, and I hope that it becomes more of the norm. We normalize this kind of climate spending and where we get our energy from and in the standards of how we even construct things and develop. Mm -hmm. um, so this is uh, good news um, to end that above the fold, especially after the beginning bad news about the Great Coral Reef. Mm. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I hope it. Um, I hope they continue to increase it, and I, I really hope this makes some good um, changes in the world and for our climate because it'll affect all of us. So did you hear about what happened in Nashville? You mean the fact that the Republican Party is signaling that they are going to go full ham, throw the kitchen sink during redistricting? <laughs> exactly <laughs> what, I, what I was going for there. Um, but I think before we get into that story, let's talk about what the redistricting process is and why Republicans have an advantage over Democrats in this country with it. So redistricting is when districts for the U.S. House of Representatives and state legislators are, drawn, are redrawn. Every 10 years, the U.S. Census Bureau collects and reports out new population information for every single state. Based on population, some states will gain some seats in the House of Representatives. Some will lose some seats. Districts have to be drawn as equal in population as possible, which means that once new population information comes out every 10 years, the districts must be redrawn to keep up with equally sized districts. When it comes to who redraws these districts, if that's something you're wondering, it usually comes down to a normal legislative process of passing a bill about it, then sending it to the governor to sign or veto. However, depending on which party is in power in your state legislator, district lines can be drawn to that party's advantage by drawing districts strategically around who they know will vote for them or not, something known as partisan gerrymandering. Mm. There are a few states actually out there that have independent commissions to draw new lines. However, oh, Michigan. Michigan has it? Michigan has it. It was the last thing I got to vote for before I moved to Idaho. Guess what state doesn't have it? Idaho. That's what, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> However, the majority of states do it by which party is in power, which has led to a rather lopsided advantage for the Republican Party yes. based off past uh, big legislative wins in states. They just always beat the Democrats when it comes to state legislatures. They own most of them. Yeah. yeah. But we did have that last amendment that we voted for in Idaho. I still don't know if it passed or failed about limiting how many congressional districts, districts that can be. I don't know if that passed or failed either. We'll get back to you. We'll have to look on that one. <laughs> but it is important to note as well that um, after this last census, Texas gained two seats. While Florida, North Carolina, Colorado, Montana, and Oregon all gained one. Um, California lose a couple. California lost one. Michigan lost one. The entire Rust Belt lost one. Um, but noteworthy for Democrats specifically, California and New York lost one um, representative district. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting how, like, especially when districts are redrawn, like, it can completely, like, upend. Um, whoever the lawmaker that was elected from that district 
like if they were comfortable there or had won the past couple times, it could be completely different terrain now, depending mm-hmm. on how the districts are redrawn. Um, so obviously there's incentive to <laughs> have your party in control to <laughs> our system almost incentivizes it. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of where gerrymandering comes from. So let's get back to Nashville real quick. Um, Tennessee state legislator and governorship is controlled by the Republican party and they are looking into the possibility of splitting up the district uh, in which lies the city of Nashville. Nashville has been one district for over 60 years and votes heavily, heavily democratic. However, the suburbs around Nashville lean Republican and splitting up Nashville could give Republicans more seats than Democrats, less seats. And especially in Tennessee, Democrats only have like two districts. Two, yeah. Yeah. So what, what are your reactions to the Nashville thing? And is there anything you'd like to add about gerrymandering? Um, no, I, I'm not surprised, obviously. <laughs> I do have concerns, um, specifically, as you mentioned, it's not, hmm, it is easier now. Had the Supreme Court not ruled a certain way during the um, Voting Rights Act, it's not easy to just make a district that cuts out people and, mm-hmm. and, and feels disjointed. There is a need for continuity and consistency, well-balanced, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but due to decisions from the highest court, I do have concerns with Nashville specifically of what does it look like if you split a, a metropolitan area appropriately and how much damage could you end up doing? Could you could you tip the scale in a way that a Democrat will never win one of those two counties ever again? Yeah. Um, I also have fears, even though we have an independent um, coalition back at home, Michigan is dealing with a lot of voting stuff right now as well. And Detroit has historically been one of the hardest districts to draw because it is such an epicenter of people. So if Tennessee can find a nice formula, wouldn't be surprised if Chicago, Detroit, um, Los Angeles even becomes eligible for some similar mapping. If Republicans are in power. Yes. Full control, really, instead of power sharing. Um, I think it's also kind of notable that Republicans already can just win the House simply by redrawing districts. That's how much of the advantage they have. Um, and that's how many seats they can take away from us right now. And like, I don't want to... I don't want to take this into, uh, oh, okay, so we need to do this because so the Democrats can win. No, this is getting rid of gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering is about democracy itself in the country. Politicians should not be able to choose who's going to vote for them. And it's not an exclusive Republican thing. Yes, we might be focusing on it because sometimes it's a little bit more noteworthy. Um, But look at Baltimore, look at um, Massachusetts, even that's a great those two um, pockets are just great examples of Democrats gerrymandering and making sure that a state is forever um, a a solid Democratic stronghold. Um, Just like you mentioned, Caleb, it's it's a conversation about democracy, not about party affiliation, not about uh, ideology, but truly 
this country was founded on the belief that you deserve to be represented by someone, someone of your choosing, someone that you supported. And partisan gerrymandering specifically takes that right away from you, takes that ability away from you and forces you into a space of my voice doesn't matter because I know I'm being drowned out by X, Y, and Z. Terrell, you actually um, kind of been mentioning that Democrats do it too and whatnot. You kind of take me to another piece of news um, surrounding kind of the redistricting process. And that's the fact that Democratic state lawmakers are actually today are actually giving up their redistricting power to independent commissions when they do win. Um, And that has actually drawn stark criticism from Democratic strategists, especially when Democrats will need everything and any any kind of advantage that they can hold on to um, to keep the House this next midterm cycle. But the Democrats love to be the party of moral superiority, right? Of course. They love give to be, up, and that's probably why they lose. Give up the ability to draw your own districts and know that you could potentially hold on to the House for generations to come. Because maybe, just maybe, the Republican Party will follow suit, knowing good and damn well they won't. No, they never will. Um, but wait, do you think that Democrats should play it like Republicans do, or do you think they should do the independent commissions? I mean, I think they should do the independent commissions, because an eye for an eye will leave everyone blind, right? But at the same time, I understand where the strategists are coming from. It's, it is gut-wrenching watching the Democratic Party do anything, let alone attempt to win an election and after i hate them (laughs) i do i do i just happen to have beliefs that uh, align align with them them. (laughs) but i mean after watching this last election democratic party was supposed to win the house handedly and are skating on a razor thin majority that has continued to hinder any type of progress they can ever have you look at the senate and you already know that that was not going to be an easy challenge, but But the house wasn't supposed to be that way. The house was not, the house was supposed to, you're supposed to win some seats be so easy for the Democrats. And yet, and still somehow they lost shot. But I mean, coming to the strategist piece, right? Like that is the story of the modern democratic party. One that, It seems like all the cards are in your hand. It seems like you finally can beat the house and somehow or another you mess it up. And and by not playing by the game of the other party as a strategist, I a hundred percent can understand of I'm so infuriated that you can't just do what they're doing. I'm infuriated by that too. I also know there's a lot of factors into it. Like the democratic party is a way more diverse in terms of, who is in the coalition than the Republican party is. And mm-hmm. Republican party also has, I would probably say the biggest propaganda machine of the two parties um, in Fox news. <laughs> I mean, I, there's other factors, don't get me wrong, but so I guess my follow-up question to you would be, do you think that Democrats should play like Republicans do? And then when they are truly in power, they can make everything right. Or do, do we even have enough trust in them to do that? You know, again, I, initially I, I would want to say that, right? But I feel like you don't have to look any further than the, uh, 
you set it up very, very well. The Democratic Party is extremely diverse in ideology and belief and understanding. And you have to look no further than Joe Manchin, right? West Virginia, Democrat, very conservative, very, um, very on the side of government can work for the people, but also government can't do everything. And he still stands by as the Senate struggles to piece together an election bill. Um, He stands by the fact that gerrymandering was a part of the compromise. That was something he could sign on to, knowing that a lot of his counterparts, Republicans specifically, that he would need to come to his aid to pass his bill, don't agree with that. So I, I do think that, yes, it would be awesome from a, a pure Machiavellian power dynamic of, yeah, Democrats play just like Republicans and whoever wins out at the end of the day gets it. But Joe Manchin gives you a sign that there is something core to the belief and the understanding of what democracy is in at least one of our parties that still matters and is still core and is still important to how we move forward. And that should be the guiding principle across all platforms, not so much the idea of who wins. I I agree with that. And, you know, I think this is probably a good time to highlight the For the People Act. I know we've talked about it before. A few times. Um, and I mean, the For the People Act is pretty much, at the moment, it's dead in the water. It's not dead, dead, but it's dead in the water. And then, because Joe Manchin didn't even want to vote for it. But he did. Well, Joe Manchin came back with a watered-down bill of it. Yeah, watered-down's a stretch. A, a little bit. I mean, it still had a lot of stuff, but it, like we weren't super expecting him to do that, but he did. And uh, I believe it didn't get past the filibuster just it today. It did not. On it Tuesday. fell to party lines 50-50 and by Senate rules. That means it will not proceed. Which is... Not a bad thing. You know, it's not the end of it, though. It's not it the not. end of that of that bill's journey. But um, kind of back to the actual bill itself, both versions of the bill had a ban on partisan gerrymandering. In it. And that's the only way that might like save us from the massive advantage that Republicans have. Um, obviously, Republicans have passed just horrid voter suppression bills all across the country. There's been, I think, a few hundred now different restrictions that they're trying to implement, um, things that are inherently and disgustingly racist and whatnot. And I mean, we all know what they're trying to do, um, but it's also notable that even Senate Republicans know, even the moderate ones know not to vote in favor of even getting debate going on this. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes it all the more important that we continue to put pressure on our um lawmakers and whatnot to pass the For the People Act to ban partisan gerrymandering. Um, what was your take on the on the vote today? I wasn't surprised. Uh, <laughs> Same. <laughs> it's what you were... It's what we were talking about before, right? So I was able to hear a couple of speeches and um, speeches on the floor. Mm-hmm. And Somehow or another, the argument has come to election integrity. Now, the U.S. election is known for being one of the most secure elections in the globe. 
It's it is a fact. There is a very, very, very low number of cases of cases of voter fraud that are uh, one reported and two found to be accurate. Case in point, all the trials and lawsuits that the Trump campaign lost. But (laughs) there was a conversation about the need for voter IDs and the, the importance of having some form of identification when you go to a voting place. And, um, you know, I'm the, also the social media human. There was a similar conversation on TikTok with a um, right-wing um, spokesperson, talking head, whatever you want to call them, that brought up, you, you need an ID when you buy alcohol. You need an ID when you... Um, uh, get cigarettes. You need an ID when you do this. You need an ID when you do that. So why is it so improper to the Democrats that you need an ID when you vote? And the quick response was a great one of voting is a right. It's not some leisure thing that you do. It's not something that you need to prove that you are eligible for. If you are a citizen of this country, voting is a right. And there are voter rolls to prove that you are legally a resident of this country and you are sent out a voting card that tells you which precinct you vote for. So there are processes to make it go there. Having to provide another form of ID is nothing more than like we were talking about in Above the Fold, all the things that were happening around and after Juneteenth of how can we stop a group of people from being able to vote? Yeah. So I I struggle here because the conversation has shifted to this is a vote and a uh, this bill will make our elections less secure versus a real genuine conversation of this is a bill that really commits to democracy. We don't have to look that far, but to the 1960s when the U.S. government passed an overhaul of our voting and election laws to allow for African-Americans to vote safely, securely, and and in mass. Republicans voted for that bill. Democrats voted for that bill. People who didn't vote for that bill were Southerners who didn't want African-Americans to vote against them. Shock. (laughs) How did we allow, how do we allow Indiana to become a Southerner in this conversation and how do we have a better conversation of not this is election security this is that this is tribal but this is what we go to war for this is democracy these are the conversations and the pieces that we need to have and this is not a democrat versus republican issue this is genuinely a democracy versus aristocracy issue no it truly is and i mean for the record joe manchin's bill that was voted on kept voter ID in it, it was just a looser form of it. Mm-hmm. Like you could provide different documents than it didn't have to be like a specific ID or anything like that. And they still voted it down. They still voted it down. Well, it's because, I mean, in their obvious messages, Democrats want to upend democracy and give themselves yeah. all the advantage, which just isn't true. They're literally handing off gerrymandering to independent commissions that have Democrats and Republicans and a lot of neutral people on it. Um, Normally citizens. They're just making it easier for people to vote. And 
like you said, that's democracy. That's what our democracy should be. We should have the power to vote who we want to vote in to represent us. And I mean, throw it in there. Throw voter IDs in there. If that's really the sticking point, throw them in there. I guess it wasn't. Mandate that every American now needs to have a driver's license. But give it to them then. Yeah. No, 100%. Like, put like, that in the, you can put that in the bill. You can write, you yeah, can write I, legislation where it is required now, like to be an American citizen, just like it's required for you to have a social security card, you need to have X type of identification. And that identification is now also required when you vote. I challenge the Democratic Party to get their heads out of their asses, if I'm being blunt, and put that in the bill. Sure, you're probably going to have some groups that are going to come out and say that they are just suppressing the vote and blah, 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 blah. But very similar to the COVID bill, people don't read the fine print. And when they read into it and see that this is a workaround to stick it to the conservative party and say, you know what, we agree, we want it to be more secure. So we're going to invest in and do all the work to make it happen. See if the Republican Party can still cave. And if they do, that is when you have to start actually using the messages of this is nothing but a power game to the Republicans. We're here fighting for democracy. We're here fighting for what we believe is right. We compromise. And you still believe that giving you voter IDs is a step is not enough. Now you want X. Now you want Y. I really think and I really question, and this will be my tangent because Chuck Schumer has literally been the bane of existence since he was ever thought of. Um, Stay tuned for that tangent. I really question, I really think, if you play it to their game in that way, not the power grab way, but using some of their legislative ideas and, and using it against them, essentially, you will find quicker than not that they're just a bunch of hot air. And once you poke the right thing, you, you kind of have them. Cause if that's the case, now I expect, um, I can't remember her name, Senator from West Virginia. I expect her to vote alongside her comrade because her colleague, I shouldn't say comrade because not many socialists, her colleague, because <laughs> that was her argument. It, it's not secure. We need voter IDs. Um, I expect uh, Mitch McConnell to be a co-signer because that was his largest issue with it. How do we, how does our legislative process start doing things like that again? I think is, is the topic and the issue that we, we need to be more focused on. Yeah, I agree. You know, I'm curious, I know it's not the end of voting rights reform um, yet, even though there, I don't know, like we all knew it wasn't, that it was going to be filibuster tonight. And yet the narrative is like, oh, it's over. Oh, this is such a, bad defeat, it's nowhere close to being over. Yeah. And so I'm really interested to see, because I feel like there hasn't been urgency within Democratic leaders to do something about this. And so I am interested to kind of see how their, whatever strategy they have or strategy that they will soon implement, if not already implemented. I, I wonder, I'm curious how that's going to play out over the next several months. Um, well, obviously, we don't have a lot of time to do this. Um, but I'm really hoping that we got some tricks up our sleeves that are actually going to do something. Well, it's funny you mentioned that too, because I, I have to dive into Senate rules, which I don't want to do, but 
if I remember correctly, something really important about what Chuck Schumer is doing right now is bringing some large pieces of legislation to the floor so that they are filibustered. They're more so cloctured. They're not really filibustered, which isn't like you mentioned, the end of debate that doesn't remove the bill. That doesn't mean that it can't be reintroduced. What that does, however, do is give them an opportunity, if I remember correctly, to bring that bill in different locations and different spaces and, and use it later, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I am intrigued to see, I'm not giving him any hope because I, I can't stand him, but I am intrigued to see if that is a part of Schumer's calculation of um, recently they just came out and said they're ready to put in a $6 trillion infrastructure bill through reconciliation. Is Are these actions being utilized so that pieces can be taken out and moved in other um, arenas? And is Schumer finally playing chess, not checkers? Yeah. One last kind of thing I'll say on this topic is, is like what kind of strategy was made here from Schumer's perspective or leadership's perspective in the Democratic Party um, along the lines of the filibuster? Mm -hmm. And are they betting that there will be some kind of catalyst that will get people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and whoever else is hiding behind them on board in the future? It, like, is that possible? And is this part of that long game that they're playing? Guess we'll find out. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Take us on a tangent, Caleb. All right. Um, I'm not mad at anything this week. I mean, except the normal politics stuff. But uh, my tangent is... You're never mad lately. I know. I haven't really had any, like, like mad tangents. Um, Can't relate. I haven't had any recently, anyways. I've had a couple. But my tangent this week kind of goes along the lines with something I talked about last week, which is the Euro 2020 which is a European soccer tournament that I've been watching. And um, my team, my international team, is Germany. Some people might ask, why is it not the U.S.? Well, first of all, I am... Do you really have to ask that question? Yeah, we, we don't. I mean, first, <laughs> first of all, they're not good. And I know that's not necessarily a reason not to support the U.S. Don't worry, I do. But my team is Germany, and I am part German. So they had a really dumb defeat in their opening game against defending world champions, France, where they accidentally scored an own goal and lost one to zero. It was <laughs> really frustrating, but they came back and um, they're in the group of death because you have not only the defending world champion France in the group with them, but you also have Portugal, who's the defending champion of the last Euro. Um, and they played Portugal on Saturday and they won four to two, which was quite the turnaround from France. And now the worst team in the group, uh, Hungary, um, they will play against Hungary. And I'm not, you can't write off anyone in soccer because if they really want it, um, they can at least get a draw, which is a big deal. Yes. Right now, there's some teams a little bit more. Yeah, what's would, their group look like? Their group looks like this right now. France is in the lead. 
Um, Germany is second, but has the same amount of points as Portugal, but they beat Portugal, so they're in second. Ah. And then Hungary's last, but Hungary actually tied France on Saturday. Oh, which oh, that group is a cluster right now, which doesn't make sense. But um, this group is exciting to watch because there's one game left for each of them in that group before um, two teams advance. And <laughs> if they all. Two teams out of four will advance. Yeah, Sometimes just, a third can advance. Sometimes. I'm thinking of that type of situation because if Germany and Hungary drew, but France lost. If France lost, they might not be in it. Yes. Or they would be the weird third group. Because they, might of, be in, they might be the weird third one. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But <laughs> the, I mean, you kind of just added to my point that it's just kind of a mess. But like... <laughs> Any team right now could get in, and any team could still lose out, including France and Germany. Yes, but the but the games are actually on Wednesday. Obviously, we record these on Tuesday, so by Thursday we will know what have, what has happened. It'll be very interesting to see how mad or sad or happy I will be next tangent. Take us on a tangent, Terrell. Hmm. Um, my tangent is going to be short, sweet, to the point. We need a new Senate Majority Leader. Chuck Schumer has failed. I'm open to suggestions. Um, It is really frustrating that Senator Manchin not only drafted a compromise bill to the For the People Act, but also led to um, meeting with organizers and other senators from other parties to connecting with and and having real conversations about the importance of this bill only for it to one fail, but to not have any sense of unified action from the, um, from the democratic leadership. It, it had nothing. It was, it was lackluster. I feel like that's part of the strategy actually. I don't know no. if it's a good one, but didn't isn't the idea to show Manchin that bipartisanship is not alive and well? I mean, I mean, he couldn't do anything. It was fifty-fifty, maybe a little bit, but you, as a majority leader, take responsibility in building coalitions. Like it, you can't stand out there and say oh, yeah, we're going to follow and do X, Y, and Z because these are priorities, but then pass it off to your rank and file. Yes, Manchin has power right now because people are are listening to and concerned with um, the things that he's saying, but he he shouldn't be the one leading all of these things it's the same thing that happened under the trump administration granted he was a minority leader at that point in time schumer never shows up it was nancy pelosi who was leading the charge it was nancy pelosi who was arguing for the democrats again she was of higher ranking at this point so it makes sense but if you are supposed to be a leader you should have more of an insight and more of a, a compelling when you're speaking um amy klobuchar should not be reaching out to members of the party to understand what their votes are. She should not be reaching out to other members of the other party um, to understand their grievances. Uh, Elizabeth Warren should not be out making and pitching and finding different ways to uh, coordinate, I guess is the best word I can think of, the 
the advancement of causes that matter. Like that is the role of a leader. Hence the reason Harry Reid is remembered as such a great Democratic Senate majority leader. Um, and I'm just frustrated with him and I just don't think he's doing a good job. I don't think he has as many allies in the Senate as people believe he does. Um, I mean, to be fair, you've never thought he's been doing a good job. Fair. I don't, I, I think he is just as damaging to legislation. I don't think people take him seriously. I know for a fact Kristen Sinema doesn't take him seriously, but eh, who does she take seriously at this point? I, <laughs> I, really, I really think that there is an opportunity to have better option, but alas, here we are. I, you know, I don't know. Like, like I definitely hear you, and I, I think on face value, I'm as frustrated as you are, but I'm also interested because, like, I know that Joe Manchin is part of the leadership team that Schumer has. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm curious what... I guess I'm just, I'm curious to see how this strategy plays out because like, to me, it looks like they're letting Joe Manchin kind of do his thing. Like, look, if you want bipartisanship, go and find it. And they're slowly proving that he's not going to find it. But I don't know if there's more to that, that we aren't seeing. I don't know if that'll actually be a catalyst to change the minds of some of these moderates on the democratic side in the Senate for filibuster reform, perhaps. I, it's unclear right now it, the path looks murky and it's unclear if we will be able to get through the bog to me. Meanwhile, you have a bipartisan group meeting just over yonder to talk about and have conversations around infrastructure. So I, I agree with your point. Sure, it might have started as a, if you want bipartisanship, go find it. However, I do think that it's telling that the White House also feels like there's a lack of leadership in the Senate currently, as they set up and brought in a group of senators that, again, did not include Chuck Schumer, and said, figure it out. And they've been having conversations with this bipartisan group to say, we will not support a gas tax. That is our red line. Find another way to pay for it. Meanwhile, Chuck Schumer is what, sitting in his office, nah, kind of helping campaign. I will give him some credit because I do think he played a role in Val Demings um, deciding to become a run for Senate in Florida, which he is actually good at camp, like getting people to run. But he just has historically sucked as a leader. And I'm very, very frustrated with it at this point. Historically, as in the last four years. I mean, I'm still counting in when he was minority leader. He was awful then, too. He never understood how to work with uh, Mitch McConnell. Granted, that can get some of its own heat. Well, but to be fair, Mitch McConnell is someone who is unwilling to work with anyone that's not Republican. Including some of his fellow Republican colleagues. Debatable. He had his moments under the Trump administration because he equally didn't like that administration and the way they handled things. Hence the reason the Democrats walked away with a lot of wins, surprisingly. Because Trump liked to screw over Mitch McConnell. Anyway, not relevant. Um, I just, I really have not. You don't have faith. It's not even just that I don't have faith. I just haven't seen anything that makes him seem like a good leader. And I don't understand why we willingly do it. Because all the arguments I heard were, oh, well, he's a man of the Senate. He knows and has a lot of friends across the aisle. Show it. Prove it make phone calls, do your job. I don't hear anything from the whip. Where is he at? 
have better conversation, like be better. And that's my danger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's our show, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.